This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, Newark, New Jersey throws a party for Mumia Abu-Jamal's latest book. Mumia, the nation's best-known political prisoner, offers his journalistic analysis of Joe Biden's worthiness for president. And the Socialist Action Party's candidate tells us why he ought to be president. But first. Dr. Gerald Horn is Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and possibly Black America's most prolific living political writer. One of his latest books is U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus Liberation of Southern Africa, From Rhodes to Mandela. Chapter 2 is titled, U.S. Lays the Foundation for Apartheid, 1906-1930. The United States did create the world's first totally racially regimented society in the Jim Crow South. But did the U.S. lay the foundation for South Africa's apartheid? Dr. Horn explains. As the book suggests, the Carnegie Corporation of New York, by its own admission, for which it has subsequently apologized, formulated the blueprint for apartheid during that chronological period you just articulated. Apartheid, as you know, formally arrives in 1948 with the rise of the so-called National Party in South Africa, an Afrikaner Nationalist Party in the first instance, But as I'm sure listeners recognize, racism has a long genealogy in South Africa and Southern Africa as a whole, uh, going back to the first arrival of the Dutch invaders in 1652 at the southern tip of Africa. However, apartheid represents a great leap forward, if you like, in terms of racism and neo-slavery and of Jim Crow, the term you just mentioned, it's a combination of neo-slavery and Jim Crow on steroids. It was designed to throw up a wall between poor Afrikaners, Afrikaners being those you might call white. They are the descendants of the original Dutch invaders with a subsequent infusion from French Protestants arriving at the end of the 1600s. And there was a fear that poor Afrikaners would align on a class basis with poor Africans. And apartheid was a kind of affirmative action policy for poor Afrikaners, providing them with a social promotion and an economic promotion by dint of being hired in state-controlled corporations, controlled from the capital Pretoria. This is what apartheid amounted to, and I think that the rise of apartheid holds lessons for many of us struggling in the United States against Trumpism. 
And what specific lessons? Well, I think that we need to recognize that settler colonialism, bizarrely a term infrequently invoked on these shores, even by those who consider themselves to be radical and progressive, is a very difficult monster to subdue. Uh, as I detail in this book, it's difficult to imagine apartheid retreating, and I should say retreating more so than any of the verb, without the support of the entire international community. <laughs> Not only the solidarity movement in the United States of America, which I provide great detail for, but also for the entire socialist camp, which not coincidentally began to decompose in 1989, 1990, just as the apartheid authorities sensed that this would be a blow in their favor. And they chose that moment to free Nelson Mandela, unban the African National Congress, etc. I think that as we grapple with the point that's difficult to avoid, that a substantial percentage of Euro-Americans are in bed with Trumpism, we need to figure out why that's the case. And I think that if we do, we have to take an unsentimental view with regard to the formation of the United States of the late 18th century, see it as a counter-revolution against the growth of abolition in London, and see it as a pan-European project that is to say, a project designed to provide a social promotion and an economic promotion to those defined as white against the interests of those of us not so defined. What happens in succeeding centuries is that that model was forced to retreat because of the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, the rise of British abolitionism, aforementioned, 20th century, the rise of the socialist camp, etc. But now, with the virtual disappearance of the Soviet Union and its allies in Eastern Europe, you see, surprise, surprise, that there are those who are defined as white would like to retreat to the bad old days. And since even those who are defined as radical don't seem to have an analysis that would help them to understand the predicament that we face, it appears, according to certain posters, that Mr. Trump will be reelected in November 2020, despite his colossal misdeeds and depredations that he has perpetrated. Yes, and we should point out that Donald Trump won a majority of white voters in the past election. Now, regarding the difficulties in getting lots of white people to break with the white settler past of the United States, I think we ought to point out that the U.S. today has its closest security relationships with Great Britain, the so-called mother country of the white settler state, and its other white settler colonies, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. In fact, the security relationship is so close that these countries look at the same secret information as the CIA has. They're called the Five Eyes. Well, that is correct. And another remarkable aspect of life in the United States today is the failure to connect the dots. I mean, speaking of five eyes, we have this remarkable rise in London of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, who Mr. Trump himself calls the British Trump, 
who is part of the hard right, who has a policy that is somewhat uh, like a sycophant with regard to Mr. Trump. In Australia, you have the rise of Scott Morrison, another uh, Trump in disguise or thin, in thin disguise. And with elections taking place in Canada, it would not be surprising if Justin Trudeau is escorted out of office and he is replaced by another Trump dummy, if you like, in Ottawa. Now, the problem in the United States is that you can't understand domestic politics unless you understand global politics. But even our friends on the left, even those who consider themselves to be radical, they hardly have a clue as to what's going on in the world. Uh, They have the sketchiest idea of what's going on in the world. And that's one of the reasons why we're in the predicament, the pickle that we're now facing. Back to your book in Chapter 5. The title of that chapter is Washington as Midwife as Apartheid is Birthed, 1945-52. to Washington as actually giving birth to the South African version of segregation. Well, the dilemma that is faced post-1945 is that the Soviet Union had carried water with regard to the defeat of fascism in Germany. And that had given the Soviet Union enormous prestige along with its allies, particularly the French Communist Party and the Italian Communist Party. And I will also say the South African Communist Party. And so the problem for Washington was how do you escape from this post-war dilemma that it faced? One of the ways it escaped was encouraging its comrades in Pretoria to engage in a crackdown on the South African Communist Party and the African National Congress, which of course began to unfold with the birth of apartheid in 1948. And it also involved closer security ties uh, to South Africa, uh, more direct foreign investment from US corporations into South Africa, uh, which takes advantage of the neo-slave wages that were accorded to the African majority. And this helps to bind Pretoria closer to Washington. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the regional situation in that part of Africa, because as you know, across the border in what is now Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia, Washington faced a similar d- dilemma with regard to supporting a white minority regime that was grossly outnumbered by an African majority. And then on both the West Coast of Africa with regard to Angola and the East Coast with regard to Mozambique, you saw Portuguese colonialism entrenched, Portugal being a fascist country, but a charter member of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which the United States dominated. And so fascist Portugal, colonial Portugal was also tied very intimately and closely to Washington. And then Washington sought to block by any means necessary the fact that South Africa was engaged in a legal occupation of its northern neighbor, speaking of what is now Namibia, and it took armed struggle and legal wizardry and the International Court of Justice to finally push South Africa out of Namibia But once again, Washington was a major stumbling block with regard to this just just measure. And again, but for the international solidarity movement in this country, 
grounded in student movements and in trade union movements, allied with the socialist camp, not least Cuba, whose intervention in 1975 defeated the Portuguese colonialists as they were retreating, not to mention the apartheid army, which invaded southern Angola in 1975. This was a turning point in the history of Pan-Africanism, a turning point in the history of Southern Africa, a turning point in the struggle against white supremacy, and it, by its own admission, traumatized Washington, the fact that Fidel Castro had the gumption to send tens of thousands of troops across the Atlantic to administer a sound whipping to racists with the rumor floating in the ether that he would not stop, the Cubans would not stop in Angola, but would march eastward into what is now Zimbabwe and forcibly eject the racists from power and then march on to Pretoria and do the same. This helped to induce a sense of realism in terms of negotiators on behalf of the races. But at the same time, the trauma induced in Washington caused it to redouble its efforts to destabilize the entire socialist camp, which it sought to do in the first instance in Cuba, but which it succeeded in helping to bring to reality in Eastern Europe by 1989, 1990, 1991. I'd like to go back to this 1945-1948 era and then return to more recent times. You have pointed out both in the book and just now, how the United States increased its security, military, and economic ties to South Africa at the time that grand apartheid was being put into practice. But in the 50s, the situation for the U.S. domestically becomes much more complex as the United States experiences a full-blown anti-apartheid movement. Well, that is correct. It's a very complex situation that the U.S. ruling class confronts post-1945. I mentioned the prestige of the Soviet Union because it had defeated with little assistance from its so-called allies, I should add, uh, Nazism and fascism, and then that had knock-on effects with regard to support for the Italian Communist Party, French Communist Party, etc. But it also has knock-on effects with regard to the U.S. Communist Party and the U.S. left in general, in earlier books, I've talked about Ben Davis Jr., elected to the New York City Council from Harlem on the Communist Party ticket in 1943, re-elected in 1945, then unceremoniously, perhaps illegally, ejected and put on trial in 1949, and then jailed, circa 1950-1951. His close friend and comrade, Paul Robeson, the activist, artist, intellectual, linguist, uh, singer, etc., uh, had founded the Council on African Affairs in 1937. Uh, this was the premier organization crusading and campaigning against apartheid and colonialism in Africa. He was joined in 1948, that pivotal year, by W.E.B. Du Bois, who had been sacked by the NAACP, an organization he helped to found because of Du Bois's reluctance to go along with the Red Scare and the Cold War. But alas, the Council on African Affairs came under fire as well because Washington was able to execute a very delicate maneuver, that is to say bludgeoning the black left into submission in the persons of folks like Du Bois, Robeson, Ben Davis, William Patterson, Claudia Jones, Shirley Graham Du Bois, et al. 
and at the same time, granting anti-Jim Crow concessions through the good offices, in quotation marks, of the NAACP. The NAACP, of course, went along with anti-communism, went along with the Red Scare, and as I point out in the book, tried to get the African National Congress to do the same thing. That is to say, to flip them into the anti-communist column through dip of the NAACP alliance with the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, it's remarkable that the NAACP is meeting in Detroit as we speak. And once again, there is a failure to grapple with some of the more odious aspects of its history, which helped to shed light on why the community it is sworn to represent Black Americans in the first place are fighting an uphill climb confronting the specter, if you accept the thesis of the book by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, fascism a warning, that a country that has countenanced genocide against Native Americans and mass enslavement of Africans, followed by decades of apartheid Jim Crow, now confronts the specter of fascism, which it seems to a certain degree logical, except to our delusional friends on the left who tout this charade about so-called bourgeois democracy emerging in the late 18th century when it actually was apartheid democracy, as any fool should be able to tell you. But alas, this is the situation which we are now forced to confront. Yes, and to deepen the historical analogy, 1948, the founding of official apartheid in South Africa, is also the year that the Dixiecrats in the United States under Strom Thurmond broke away temporarily from the Democratic Party because some in that party were talking somewhat about civil rights. Well, yes, 1948 is a pivotal year in, in many respects. In a book I wrote on the Caribbean, a Cold War in a Hot Zone, I pointed out that 1948 was also the year that you had the split in the independence forces in Jamaica, Barbados, etc., with uh, Grantley Adams, Tom Adams, or Barbados deciding to take the NAACP line, uh, serving up to be crushed, those to their left, uh, something similar unfolds in Jamaica with the rise of Bustamante and uh, his so-called Labor Party uh, in Kingston. So this is a global phenomenon once again. And part of the tragedy of what's unfolding in the United States of America is that, as I just suggested by referencing Boris Johnson in London and Scott Morrison in Canberra, the impending elections in Australia, that once again, we're faced with a global phenomenon that we're trying to understand through a national parochial lens, an approach that's doomed to fail. And then going forward one more decade to the 60s, the dilemma of the United States becomes even more complex because we have then a movement that is much larger and is sounding at its core very much like Robeson and Du Bois and others. It is anti-imperialist and pro-liberation. Well, that is true. That is to say that Washington, who decides to make this agonizing retreat from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow, opens a Pandora's box. Uh, that is to say that it opens the door for the rise of militant elements within the anti-Jim Crow movement, oftentimes to the left, 
of the NAACP. I'm speaking of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I'm speaking of many elements within Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And by the way, in the early 1960s, the Johnson administration in Washington was petrified with the idea that Dr. King would go to the United Nations and do a Robeson. Recall that in 1950-1951, Robeson and Patterson, through the, the offices of the Civil Rights Congress, had sought to bring U.S. leaders into the dock of the United Nations, charging them with genocide. There was a fear that Dr. King would seek to replicate that, not least because of his pre-existing ties to uh, Albert Luthuli and the leadership of the African National Congress. Uh, you had a militant movement arising in terms of SNCC uh, storming the offices of the South African consulate in Manhattan, calling with the uh, authorities, having to call the police. You have the American Committee on Africa, which is kind of a liberal counterpart to the then-defunct Robeson-led Council on African Affairs, which also was forced to engage in a kind of militancy. We should long remember its aerial freedom rhymes. That is to say, recall what I just said about the legally occupied Namibia and the American Committee on Africa wanted to visit there, did not want to go through the apartheid authorities to get visas, so they hired planes to just fly in willy-nilly into Namibia, dropping leaflets along the way and barely uh, avoiding a plane crash. I mean, this is the kind of militancy that I think ultimately helped to bring a sense of realism to the authorities in Pretoria and their comrades in Washington, uh, forcing both to reluctantly give up political power while even to this very day straining to control economic power. And then finally, in the 70s, we have Cuba, the country whose revolution the United States has been trying to smother since 1959, Cuba intervening militarily in Southern Africa. Well, yes, that is true. We are now in the 60th year of the Cuban Revolution, uh, July 26th marks a holiday, a national holiday uh, in Havana. Recall that the intervention in Angola was triggered by the overthrow of fascism in Portugal in April 1974 by way of a left-wing soldiers movement. Let me repeat, a left-wing soldiers movement, something we need to study quite carefully here in the citadel of U.S. imperialism, and this armed forces movement, as it was called, caused uh, conniptions to erupt in Washington. What's striking, as I tell the story in the book, is that the AFL-CIO, which plays a, shall we say, mixed role with regard to the events that I'm describing, with regard to Portugal, they were more militant than the CIA, believe it or not, in trying to reverse the anti-fascist tide in Lisbon. In fact, they were instructing the CIA to man up and double down on engaging in destabilization tactics. Fortunately, at least in the, the short term, they were not successful, and that opened the door for the Cuban intervention the following year, uh, which had been preceded by a few months by Mozambique on the southeastern coast of Africa coming to independence under the charismatic leadership of Samora Michel, with the Cuban troops uh, intervening against not only apartheid South Africa and Yankee imperialism, but I'm also afraid to say 
Maoist China, this caused a certain amount of ideological confusion uh, in our ranks of the Black Liberation Movement, a, a story that I go to some lengths to detail. And I would recommend that particular story to all strugglers on this side of the Atlantic. But in any case, the Cuban troops were able to vouchsafe Angolan independence. And as noted, that had a positive reverberating impact on the liberation struggle in what is now Zimbabwe, with that country surging to independence in 1980, and of course, helping to boost South Africa itself to independence by 1994. Recall that when Fidel Castro Ruz arrived in Pretoria for the inauguration of Nelson Mandela, he received the stormiest applause of all of the dignitaries assembled, not least because those assembled recognized that but for the Cuban intervention, there probably would have been a more elongated period for the shelf life of apartheid. And for that, I think that all strugglers on this side of the Atlantic owe it to ourselves to engage in constant and massive solidarity with the Cuban revolution. That was Dr. Gerald Horn speaking from Houston. At the Source of Knowledge Bookstore in Newark, New Jersey, veterans of the Black Panther Party organized a hugely successful roundtable discussion of the new book by Mumia Abu-Jamal and his co-author Stephen Vittoria. It's titled Murder Incorporated, and it's in three parts— The second volume, with a focus on U.S. imperialism, was just released. One of the speakers at the roundtable was Todd Stephen Burroughs, author of a number of books and co-author of Connecting Manning Marable's Malcolm X. Burroughs is also a biographer of Mumia Abu-Jamal. I've been researching Mumia Abu-Jamal's life for 20 years. I'm writing a biography on him. Wow. The biography started as a journalistic biography in which I was going to view Mumia from the point of view of the history and development of black journalism in the 20th and 21st century. However, I took too long because Mumia has now evolved into something else. Mumia now is no longer satisfied with just the op-ed format. He is no longer just satisfied with the kind of more uh, popular presentation of a George Jackson analysis. Mumia has decided to go to the next level and replace Howard Zinn. That's right. And mm. replace Jerome right. Bennett. That's right. <laughs> that is what this trilogy of books is about. All right? So if you have not read these books, uh, you heard from our sister. Thank you for that excellent um, yes. summary right. yeah, uh, right of what right on, right he was been talking about. And Stephen Victoria. And Stephen right. Victoria. He's a business. He is, he, they are both presenting what is, well, until the squad, right, what, has, what used to be unpopular, and I guess when a Democrat comes in office, it will be unpopular again, which is a decolonized perspective. Right. These books, by the way, published by Noelle Hanrahan, the woman who was responsible for putting Mumia on the air in the first place. She's the publisher of this book, of these books. So we're talking about a a history of decolonization done from the perspective of decolonization. So I just wanted to, to say that as someone who's studied Mumia's writings going all the way back to when he was 
15 years old, writing for the Black Panther newspaper. From those essays to today, at 65, we are getting the same analysis of capitalism, of imperialism. So I just wanted to say that. There's a lot more I can say about that, but I'm not going to do that because I want to read uh, part of the book. Now, one of the things that Stephen Victoria and Mumia have done in this book series, again, this is the second of three, and Pam, is, is the next one coming out next year? Because I, I feel like they've been coming out once a year. It might be coming out December. The third one's going to come out in December? December. <laughs> wow. And I want you to understand, these are, these are 300 plus page books exactly. with footnotes and endnotes that go on for 30, 40 pages. This, this is not a collection of essays. These are actual historical books that are decolonized. And these two have produced three. They're going to produce three in as many years. Right? So one of the things that they decided to do in these books is, is that after giving an analysis of white supremacy, capitalism, and this particular book, Militarism, they then decided that each book would end with people who were standing for a humane society. And this section of, of both books are called No. Right? They have a whole back section called No. And so each of the authors choose a person that they profile that is a profile in radical courage, so to speak. Right All right? Right off. So right off I'm assuming yeah. that Mumia chose the person I'm about to read. I'm just going to read a small part of the person I think Mumia chose for his person, and, and then we'll, we'll move on to more substantive speakers. Many years ago, decades in fact, a young woman wanted to become a lawyer. She was a good student, very smart, and with the loving support of her mother and family, all of her dreams seemed within reach. Her mother was a hairdresser, and as such, in the black community of West Philadelphia, this meant a good living. For black women, then and as now, spent a good sum to tame their lots, to relax those rebellious, temptuous kinks and curls. The young woman was in pre-law classes at Temple University's North Philadelphia campus, where perhaps the majority of the city's lawyers made their foundation to a life lived in the law. Perhaps the private school, University of Pennsylvania poured some challenge, but as Temple was a state-supported college, it lured more of the city's up-and-coming working-class kids. Her road was set, and before her seemed few obstacles, except for the usual presented for black women in a society marked by racial and sexual animus. She studied the U.S. Constitution and read treatises by law professors waxing wise and eloquent on the rights and privileges of American citizenship. Perhaps she dreamed of representing the poor and underprivileged in the courts of the land, with a bold white-lettered nameplate on her desk, Ramona Johnson, Esquire. Her office would be a Tony downtown address, where she would mingle with the wealthy and the famous. Or perhaps she dreamed of representing corporations, for that is where the money is, in a high-rise office in Center City, maybe part of a small but lucrative law firm where she was both partner and a rainmaker. Wilson and Johnson, law offices, PC. But dreams are, after all, dreams. They are bridges that get us through the night. They live in a dominion all their own, on the twinkling twilight of consciousness. Yet although such dreams were possible for her, as they were for tens of thousands of young women in the 1970s, for Ramona, they were not to be. Her path changed forever when she discovered MOVE, a small but spirited commune in West Philadelphia, 
comprised of black, Latino, Asian, and white young rebels committed to the radical change of the American system and immediate move back to nature. But move didn't extinguish her dreams. The city of Philadelphia did. That's right, that's right. They did it by trying nine move members in a 1978 courtroom where all those precious rules that Ramona studied were turned into little more than dust. They took her from the soft and comfortable schoolroom of theory and hurled her into a courtroom charade in Philadelphia City Hall where she witnessed things that took her breath away. She learned by the very living of it what real law was and was not. It transferred her from a bookish, somewhat naive young college student into a revolutionary. And it sent her and the city into a spiral that would transform both forever. MOVE was a small but loud group of naturalists, famous or infamous, depending on your point of view. Right. For above all else, resisting. It seemed like they resisted everything. <laughs> Industry. <laughs> the Philadelphia Zoo. Celebrities. The cops. The courts. The media. Everything. Now, it, unfortunately, again, I wish I had time, but it goes on and it talks about the 1978 confrontation that MOVE had with the police in which James Ramp, a white police officer, gets killed, and Our that's- so-called friendly fire. And the, that's the famous incident of Delbert, Africa, being beaten by that's the right. police on, on right. video. That's right. Uh, which has been shown around the world. Um, and then, you know, it, it goes on about MOVE and about how Ramona Africa was the only adult Survivor of a decision in which the United States, a city in the United, a city in the United States, decided to bomb its own people, mm -hmm. um, and she was the only adult survivor to that. And the wow. city of brotherly love, they did that with a black mayor. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! What are we just gonna be do? Now, I just want to say what I, what I started with is that. You know, now, now radicalism has become in vogue, right? Every time we get a Republican president, radicalism becomes in vogue, right? And then every time we get a Democratic president, we're talked we're talk to about how we're supposed to negotiate and to be part of the system and get something from the system, et cetera. So I, I don't know exactly what the state of decolonization is, right? It's kind of hazy at the point because we have a lot of people who are acting very decolonized. Um, I do understand that Mamil Bou Jamal, and I say this as his biographer, he has been saying the same thing since he was 15 years old. And the same people that tried to follow him to Goddard College when he left the Black Panther Party and, and wanted to go to Goddard College, and Goddard College would not let the FBI spy on him, are the same people who to this day fight every single advance that he has done. As a result of that struggle, he has produced, I think this is book number 12, 12 books of radical, decolonized nonfiction, including, by the way, this I think is one of his most underrated books, That's right. That's An right. Examination of Jailhouse Lawyers, right. How Activists in Prison Become like Their Own inside. Lawyers. Mm. He right. was in jail interviewing people across the country for this book. This book is well better researched than some books I've seen on the outside. Right. All right, which is a hallmark, by the way, of his writing, by the way. Um, what he doesn't say is that he became one himself. Right. You have to. What he doesn't say is about the people he tried to help in prison as a jailhouse lawyer. 
So we're talking about somebody who is completely committed and who's always been completely committed to decolonizing thought and to disrupting the powers that be. Not asking for a concession when they're in power, not being a radical because it's in vogue when your friends are out of power, but actually asking for the change of the society radically, meaning structurally. And I think that we're becoming quite confused with exactly what decolonizing means and what it is to be decolonized. And I think that these books, um, as blatant as they are, I think kind of assist in that dialogue. The nation's best-known political prisoner is a lifelong journalist, Mumia Abu-Jamal, files this report for Prison Radio. It's called Biden His Time. The candidacy of Joseph R. Biden Jr. for President of the United States has caused multiple reactions across the land. Biden, who enters his 77th year of life, draws warm feelings from blacks for his relationship and partnership with the nation's first black president, Barack Hussein Obama. While this casts a warm glow over the eight years of the Obama administration, it ignores Biden's long years as a U.S. senator. That long period, which has consumed most of Biden's life, should give us reason to support or caution to avoid a Biden presidency. Biden spent over 30 years as senator from Delaware, and as such, has involved himself in hundreds, if not thousands, of issues. We will only address a few here. Biden voted to support the notorious crime bill of the 90s, which sprouted prisons across the nation's landscape. He supported a remarkable bankruptcy bill that disallowed discharge of college debts. He supported the disastrous Iraq War. Now, people can make mistakes, as all humans do, and Biden has said, if elected, he'll straighten out some of these errors. But isn't a presidential election a promotion? And isn't the time for wisdom and foresight before one votes, not after? Biden's senatorial career is chock full of examples of serving the rich and the powerful at the expense of the poor and the oppressed. His positions now are fueled by ambition and democratic desperation to beat Trump. It ain't about the people. It's about one person, Biden. Do you elect someone who has failed you for decades again, again, and again? From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. The Democrats and Republicans, the two corporate parties, aren't the only ones fielding presidential candidates. Jeff Mackler is running on the Socialist Action Party ticket. Well, I was the 2016 Socialist Action candidate for president. 
I don't know if you recall, but I lost that election to a guy named Donald Trump. And I also was Socialist Action's 2006 candidate for the U.S. Senate. And way back in the 60s, I ran for president of the New York City Council. And I had, in all of these instances, some unique experiences. For example, when I ran in California for the Senate, I filed a lawsuit because they refused to list my party. Instead, they insisted on listing me as Jeff Mackler declined to state. So I sued them. And uh, for simply the right, like all other candidates, to have the name of my party on the ballot. And a, a local friendly judge gave the lawyers who represented keeping my name off the ballot an order fining me for legal fees for $222,000, which we had to pay after a negotiated settlement. So much for my ballot rights. When I ran for president, we have counties where I got a huge number of votes, but the registrar simply didn't count them, which was the case across the country when we tried to get on the ballot or when we ran as write-in candidates. Our friends, the Democrats and Republicans, simply instructed their folks not to count us. But I intend to win this election against 20 or 24 Democrats and a couple of Republicans, perhaps, not by winning at the ballot box. This is an election of billionaires, literally, but rather by winning the hearts and minds of working people who are coming to understand that the central problems that they face, racism, poverty, global warming, endless wars and interventions, massive student debts and homophobia, sexism, and all the other evils that they are aware of are not accidents due to a politician in office or a party, but rather inherent in the capitalist system. If we're going to change anything in this world, we need to build a massive united social movement that challenges the inherent hate, prerogatives, intervention, wars of capitalism. Now, when the Democrats and Republicans finally settle on their own presidential candidates, they'll debate each other, but they won't debate anybody else. And I guess that shows the kind of special relationship between Democrats and Republicans. Exactly. You know, Glenn, in the United States in 2016, the combined total spent by the Democrats and Republicans was $6.7 billion. Now, I realize that Black Agenda Report is a bit poor, but if you could just loan me a measly million dollars for my campaign, I might be able to buy some minor time on some obscure TV station. But seriously, elections in the United States, as you say, are in the prerogative of the ruling rich. They select which candidates will eventually be theirs. They own the media and they control all of the institutions that influence people except the mass social movements. So I'm enthusiastic in that regard. Yes, it's going to be a contest between which elements of the ruling class will prevail. But in the end, in the words of Bernie Sanders, I will support whichever Democrat heads the pack after the primaries, as he did with Hillary Clinton. 
So they're wedded to the same system, minus or plus a few words. And in fact, what we're witnessing today is a mad rush orchestrated by the Democrats to the 2020 elections. Every one of the institutions that they control or influence is sheep herding like mad into the Democratic Party with the promise that in the end, the diverse range, and I say diverse in quotation marks, of candidates will all unite behind whichever representative of the ruling rich emerges on top of the pack. Now, these 20-plus Democrats, that's a big number, but you can hardly find one or two who has anything to say about foreign policy, unless it's to badmouth Russians and mutter about Russiagate. Exactly. In fact, that's what they have in common. The Democrats these days are the new party of McCarthyism. That is, anyone who challenges U.S. foreign policy and doesn't blame the problems of the world on Russia or China is to be victimized. So, for example, let's take the war in Syria. Here you have the combined forces of the United States, NATO, and the Arab monarchies all invading and supporting various jihadist groups to destroy Syria and in the course of it killing 500,000 people. And the Syrians exercising their right to self-determination, like the Venezuelans, call on Russia or China or any other group to defend their right to exist, and they are pilloried in the American press as being dominated by Russia. The right to self-determination, whether it be in Iran or Syria or any other nation on earth, Venezuela today, we're protesting this weekend against U.S. wars in Venezuela and Iran. Any nation has the right to defend itself and ask for aid. So we don't pillory the Russians. We think it's great that they provide food and medical supplies to the Venezuelan people who have been starved to death, embargoed, beleaguered, sanctioned, and otherwise attacked by imperialism. Let me give you an example of Iran today. Iran has an economy wherein literally 90-plus percent of its resources come from the sale of oil and gas. The present U.S. sanctions imposed on Iran have the effect of cutting the country off entirely from its central source of income. And not only that, but the United States, as with Venezuela, says that any European nation that buys Iranian oil will be subject to sanctions. So this sanction is not just a word. It's a concept developed by U.S. imperialism to wit they believe they have the right to starve to death any nation on earth, threaten them with wars and interventions, take over their waterways, eliminate their oil from world markets. Venezuela, for example, is the country with the largest oil reserves in the world, and Iran is the fourth. How convenient to take their oil off the world market and insist that the Europeans and every other nation on earth buy U.S. oil whose production is increased in these terrible days of climate catastrophe. The United States now dominates all world markets, 
And it's to its advantage to spend billions on the military-industrial complex to make war for the purpose of advancing the profits of the 1% who own the major corporations, not to mention oil resources in the world. So these oil wars, which go on every day in the Middle East, in Latin America, throughout Africa, are all organized to advance the interests of the imperial beast in the United States. All of my life, and that's a long time, the United States has justified its unique position and prerogatives in the world by saying that it was the one that guaranteed the free flow of things like oil and other trade throughout the world. But it's the one that blocks these trade routes. Absolutely. The United States uses the full force of its military to defend its, quote, national security interests. You know, Alan Greenspan, the former head of the Federal Reserve, when asked a question which he reveals in his thousand-page book on his life and politics, how could you justify the United States invading Iran and overthrowing the democratically elected government in 1953 of Mossadegh? And Greenspan... A man who knows about world finances said, you have to understand the 800-pound gorilla in the room is the fact that Iran was the world's leading oil producer, and that posed a national security threat to the United States government. I mean, here you have from the mouth of the angels, someone saying, yes, we went to war because oil is a national security threat. And therefore, wars continue everywhere on Earth. It's no coincidence that the United States maintains 1,100 military bases around the world. What a horror. And yet the United States says to the Iranians, if you manufacture for peaceful purposes, for medical purposes, enriched uranium or nuclear fuel, we will cut you off from the entire world market which is what they're doing today. The idea that the imperial beast can say to Iran, you can't produce enough for even one nuclear weapon when the United States has 6,000 deadly nuclear weapons, the largest number on earth. And I don't know if you recall when former Secretary of State Exxon Mobil Chief Rex Tillerson reported on a meeting in the National Security Council with President Trump, and Trump walked out of the room but left saying, we need a hundredfold increase in nuclear weapons. And after he left, Tillerson famously said, the guy's a effing moron. And that is the idea that he could contemplate a hundredfold increase in nuclear weapons. Now, of course, these are nice nuclear weapons. They're tactical. They can only destroy perhaps one city or a part of a city at a time. They're scientifically guaranteed to minimize genocide just a bit. So here we have the United States beast threatening intervention literally everywhere on the planet Earth to defend its own interests. That's what the trade wars are about. That's why the demonization of Russia and China, who are third rate, fourth or fifth or tenth rate when it comes to military capacities compared to the United States. But in order to score some points, as you say, the Democrats choose to demonize Russia. 
as if Russia is controlling the elections in the United States. Here you have the United States intervening physically, militarily, drone-wise, desk-squad-wise, and cyber-war-wise to influence elections everywhere in the world, if not to simply remove people they don't agree with and declare someone else the president, like with Juan Guaido in Venezuela. So the United States is the great intervener in literally every manifestation. The idea that the Russians could control an American election is a joke. And in fact, after almost a year of investigation, the investigating committee could find virtually nothing to prove that Russia had any influence in the elections other than perhaps a rogue individual that fooled around in the cyber world. But the real control of the elections in the United States is the multi-billionaire corporations that fund, organize, and run the elections like the ones that are unfolding today. That's why I'm in the race, because a majority of young people, if not the entire population, are increasingly coming to understand that the fundamental problem is the capitalist system as it affects them in their daily lives with regard to jobs and student debt and climate change and racism and police brutality. This is the system that they understand does not meet their interests. And therefore, the idea that socialism, the collective generous ownership of the wealth of the country, the spending our resources democratically determined by the majority of people on resolving human needs, climate change, ending racism, poverty, unemployment, and all the other ills, that seems very reasonable to them. And those are the people I'm trying to reach with my presidential election campaign. I want to build my party socialist action, and building the party is inseparable from building every single social movement that struggles everywhere for justice, peace, and human needs on the planet Earth. You're a lifelong socialist. Bernie Sanders says he's a socialist, too. Is he a kindred political spirit? Not at all. The fact that Bernie has to use the word socialism, which he basically defines as the now declining system of social democracy in the Scandinavian countries, where long ago workers' struggles, not the capitalist class, instituted and fought for some of the social gains like free medical care and education for all. But when a push comes to shove, rhetoric aside, Bernie turns his socialism into capitalism and supports whatever top dog emerges from the current charade that they call electoral politics in the United States. Not to mention the fact that Bernie's voting record, the socialist that he is, is 98% for the Democrats. He voted for every war budget, indeed every budget, and he said nothing when the United States was about to invade Venezuela. I would add that Bernie Sanders hasn't organized a mass protest against any aspect of capitalist horror in his entire life. Perhaps in his youth, he visited Nicaragua that was beleaguered by U.S. imperialism and expressed his solidarity. But he's no youth today. He's a trained capitalist politician. No one in Vermont runs against Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party. When Bernie runs, Obama speaks for him on platforms, and every Democrat is cut out from funding from the National Democratic Party. 
Bernie is simply another face of capitalism, a face that tries to say, like Elizabeth Warren and all the others, that this system, this beast can be reformed if one person is elected president. Bernie Sanders doesn't stand a chance against the multi-billionaire and trillionaire corporate elite that run this country. They write the tax codes. They invade as they like. They build a war machine that is the most profitable institution in the world. Why not? The more wars you make, the more weapons you use up, the more orders you get to refurbish a trillion-dollar budget. And the formal number is a trillion a year for military. The informal number is unknown. But the money that we pay in taxes goes in significant part, major part, to the U.S. war machine for the profits of the few. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.